if you could pick which generation you would be in, what would you pick? Mm, I would probably pick to be born around now. Really? Why? Mm -hmm. Post-pandemic. So you don't have to go through any of that junk of 2020. You may have to live through that. And I think we're going to have better regulation around social media and technology. By the time you get to adolescence, so you're not going to have to be that teen who goes through that, and you're not going to have to be the parent of teens who go through that. Everybody's getting ready for back-to-school season, and that means it's time to talk about the kids. And the kids are not all right. Gen Z is in the grips of a historic mental health crisis, with teenagers struggling with record levels of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. And Dr. Jean Twangy is here to tell us why. She has a simple explanation. It's the phones, obviously. Her research gave us some of the earliest and most complete data about how technology and social media have affected teens' mental health and well-being. Her book, iGen, published in 2017, studied the lifestyles and habits of the first generation of digital natives. And in it, Dr. Twangy argues that the iPhone radically changed how teenagers spend their time. And in her most recent book, Generations, she traces how technological advancements have defined the six living generations. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. I had so much fun geeking out with Dr. Twangy about the differences between generations, which, as you probably know by now, is my personal favorite topic. And as a mom of three, she has some great advice on how to help your kids develop a healthy relationship with both technology and social media. You know, you do a lot of work now around millennials and more recently Gen Z, who you call iGen. But I'm curious, looking at your own generation, what made Gen X? I've never completely 100% felt like a Gen Xer, but I think that's a common experience that you have some things in common with your generation, but then other things that might not quite line up. And the thing I definitely share is a love of our unified pop culture experience. You know, Saturday morning cartoons, Star Wars, you know, all the teen movies of the 80s, the John Hughes movies, all that kind of stuff, for sure. And what were the things that you feel like are maybe not so aligned with your generation? I mean, some of it is based on the stereotypes that turn out not to be completely true, of course. So in the early 90s, there was the idea that the stereotypical Gen Xer is pressed and cynical and wears black. And that was never really me. Right. And there is a little truth to that. I mean, one of the things that I looked at in generations is that the decline in trust, trust in other people, trust in institutions did start with Gen X. So there mm-hmm. is some truth to that idea of cynicism. But I don't know. I'm a little more of an optimist in uh, some ways, maybe than the average for my generation. Can you just tell us a little bit about growing up Gen X and what kinds of technology was shaping your life at that point? With Gen X, we were the first to have TV from birth, and then it was cable TV, so it was a lot of TV. And then it was video games, starting in the early 80s. Everybody had an Atari, so you'd play uh, Pac-Man or any of those other games at home. Pickaxe Pete was my favorite. (laughs) It was fun. So 
you had that, but it wasn't at the level that it would become later. So it was a mm-hmm. lot of playing outside. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of be home at dinner and a fair amount of freedom. You know, it's very common for Gen Xers to walk home from school by themselves. For me, it was third grade. I have a friend where it was kindergarten, even though right. it was a mile or two across train tracks, she tells me. You know, you would go off on your bike at the age of nine or 10 and just be like, bye, I'm leaving. Right. How did you begin to see that technology really was the defining factor in the differences between these generations? So basically, the traditional theory of generations is that generations are different because they experienced major events at different times. So things like wars, pandemics, economic recessions and depressions and so on. And sure, that has an impact on life, um, but usually it's short term and it usually doesn't change day-to-day life for more than a couple of years or a few years anyway, depending. Right. But what really has a big impact over decades in terms of how we live our lives are changes in technology. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it very different to grow up now. It's just a completely different experience. And, you know, it really came to the fore when I was um, writing my previous book, iGen, about Gen Z. There were these really, really sudden changes for teens starting around 2012, which turns out is the transition between millennials and Gen Z, you know, when you're talking about, say, high school students. And I've really never seen changes that were so big and so sudden, because, you know, I've obviously seen a lot of generational differences, but they would usually take a decade or two to get there. So um, just for context, what I'm mostly referring to here is the big national surveys of teens. And those are done every year and have been done every year for the 12th graders anyway, since the 1970s. So they give a really amazing picture of each generation when they were young. And they ask a bunch of different questions. And some of the changes were in things like, how often do you hang out with your friends? How often do you go out of the house without your parents? How often do you go to parties? And that really started to change significantly that teens were spending a lot less time with each other face-to-face socially. Then there's also big increases in teens saying they felt lonely, that they felt left out, that they felt like they couldn't do anything right, that they felt like their life wasn't useful and that they weren't enjoying life. And those last three are classic symptoms of depression. Hmm. And then these trends started to show up in other places too, in um, government-funded screening surveys for clinical-level depression, for example, emergency room admissions for self-harm behaviors. So it wasn't even just surveys, it was also objectively measured behaviors. So what do you think caused this? That's what I had to figure out because it was a huge mystery at first. It did not line up with economic trends. In fact, it was the opposite. The U.S. Mm -hmm. economy was finally starting to improve after the Great Recession around 2012 when these changes started to show up. It was hard to think of any big cultural event that happened then. And that brought me to technology. Because it Hmm. turns out the end of 2012 was the first time the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. Wow. In these same surveys, it's also around the time that more teens started to say that they were on social media every day, that it wasn't just an occasional thing. It was starting to be three out of four, pushing 80% were using social media every day. 
And that's also around the time that smartphones got front-facing cameras. Things just really shifted in the online landscape around that time. Mm. And that explained why teens would then spend less time with each other face-to-face. And it also explained why they might be feeling lonely and depressed. Even though social media is supposed to connect people, yeah, we know that it's linked to depression, especially if folks are doing it for you know more than three, four, five hours a day. There's a pretty strong link to depression. Right. That's interesting. Okay, let's talk about Gen Z because there's so much happening with this generation, particularly with mental health. Mm-hmm. Can you just give us a broad analysis of what's up with the kids? Yeah. Well, I think there's three primary elements. So the way teens spend their time outside of school is just fundamentally different than Mm -hmm. it was for millennials or Gen X. And they spend less time sleeping. And that may also be due to the distractions of technology. So that kind of leads to my number one piece of advice because I give talks pretty often to parents of high school and middle school students. And I always say, if you want to take just one thing away from the evening, it should be this, no phones in the bedroom overnight. And that's for kids, but it's also for adults. And then people say, but I have to have my phone in my bedroom overnight because it's my alarm clock. I have some advice for you. Get an alarm clock. Buy an alarm clock. Exactly. More with Dr. Jean Twangy on why phones are so bad for us, but especially for kids, when we come back. Let's just unpack this a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about the statistics? I mean, Mm -hmm. how different is the mental health situation for Gen Z than for previous generations? The transition between millennials as teens and young adults and Gen Z as teens and young adults is very stark. The changes are, are very big and very, very consistent. So as one example, clinical level depression in a screening study So not people going to the doctor or getting a diagnosis, but just seeing who has the symptoms that fit the criteria. Clinical level depression doubled between 2011 and 2019. Doubled. Among U.S. Yeah, doubled. Wow. So the rate went from roughly about 8% to about 17 or 18%. And this is young people. This is 12 to 17-year-olds. Wow. Yep. So that's adolescents. Now, I stopped at 2019 to demonstrate that this was happening before the pandemic. That rise continued into 2020 and 2021, but at about the same pace that it had been increasing in the previous years. So there's a lot of talk about the adolescent mental health crisis, but I keep reading and hearing people say, oh, it's because of the pandemic. It started nine years before the pandemic. So that's around the time, you know, Facebook bought Instagram, the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. It's when there's a transition for teens between about half of them using social media every day to where about 75 or 80% used it every day. So that means it moves from optional to virtually mandatory because social media is social. Right. You don't use it if you're in that 25%, then you're left out. If it's 50-50, then you can go either way. 
just a lot of those things kind of happened around that time. I mean, why is it that being on their phones, being on social media, not spending enough time with each other face-to-face, why does that make kids miserable? Great question. I mean, and I think the the short answer is there are so many mechanisms by which right. that combination, that change in time use can lead to depression. So one, sleep, that's huge. Getting enough sleep is absolutely key for right. mental health. So that's one very, very clear mechanism. Then getting together with people face-to-face is just a fundamentally different experience, especially during adolescence, hmm. than interacting online, particularly interacting on social media, which is much more performative, tends not to be in real time, makes popularity a number, is linked to lots of body image concerns, especially for girls and young women. Facebook's own research showed that, right? Right. One of the things that I think is really compelling about the way you have knit this data together and interpreted this is it's not just that social media causes depression but also that not being face-to-face with other kids, not Mm -hmm. going to parties, not building these friendships that are at the mall or at the soccer field, not figuring out how they're going to sneak into a concert, that not having those in-person, real-life experiences also harms kids and also makes them more depressed and sad. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And I think it's also the element of it's not just an individual problem. It's a group problem. Because yeah. let's right. say you have a kid who wants to live like it's 1988. Who are they going to go out with? Right. This is, I think, the main challenge that a lot of parents have around this is that mm-hmm. a lot of parents yep. know that phones and social media are not good for their kids. But to take it away would genuinely mean isolating them in a huge way from all of their friends and everybody who goes to school with them. So I do think there are some kind of middle ground solutions. Yeah. So one is in terms of, say, teens communicating with each other electronically. They really have to be able to do that beyond a certain age these days by high school. Right. But that doesn't have to be social media. Mm-hmm. It could be a group text. Right. You know, it could be FaceTiming your friends, which is it quite as good as being in the same room and having an experience together but you're still in real time and you're still seeing the other person's face. So I think there are some solutions. It's just with social media, the difficulty is that it is designed to keep people on it. It's designed to create that feeling that you're going to miss something. And it's almost completely unregulated. You know, there's supposed to be a minimum age limit of 13, which is not enforced. And that age limit is way too low. It probably should be 16 or even 18. And you don't need parental permission to open a social media account. So there's all kinds of nine and 10 year olds out there with TikTok accounts, for example. So other than phones, other than regulating the phones and being really careful about how people let their kids use phones, what else can parents do to help set their kids up for academic success, social success at the start of this year? And also how much of this is about parents and how much of this is just about the generation that these kids are in and this is what their lives are like? Yeah, I mean... Parents, you know, got to give yourself a little bit of a break. Everybody's struggling with these things. But I do think there are some of these guardrails that you can put in place in terms of what device they have for their own personal use and trying to keep them off social media for as long as you can. So your kids are teenagers, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're 16, 13, and 11. What was early motherhood like for you? You know, I can remember in my 20s asking people, what are the advantages of having kids? And it scared me that nobody had a good answer to that question. <laughs> right. They would always mention the downsides. But then I, one friend of mine said, you love them so much and they give you so much meaning mm-hmm. in your life. And that makes up for everything else. And plus, they're really funny. All those right. turn out to be true. So that was probably my wisest friend who gave me that advice. So I had my first when I was 35. Now, I'm an academic. It's pretty normative to wait that long. But that's unusually long even for a Gen Xer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my husband and I said, okay, we'll have one and see how it goes. And we ended up having three. (laughs) So you've spent years studying this. (laughs) How do you apply everything that you found in your own life with your own teens? Well, I mean, I got to say off the top, it's not perfect because I'm in the same boat that every other parent these days is in with technology, that it is a real struggle. My pet peeve is the school laptop. It has YouTube on it and you can't put parental Mm -hmm. controls on it. So mom, I'm doing my homework. I have no idea. Right. And I can't hover over them all the time. It's not possible. And I know I'm not the only one who has that type of struggle. Right. So please, school districts, teachers, principals. Either get YouTube off the school laptop or allow some sort of way to lock that down so maybe they just watch the video that they need for class and not anything else. And that part is out of my control. This is the the difficulty. There are some things, though, that we have done better on because we have a little more control over them. So my oldest is 16. She only got her first smartphone about six months ago. So up to that point, she had a flip phone. It became sort of part of her identity. She was kind of the only one who had the flip phone. Fortunately, she was okay with it. She actually kind of thought it was funny when people would point it out and so on. But then she got her driver's license and it made sense to get the smartphone at that point. But the smartphone is fairly locked down. Even though she is 16, she can't download apps, for example. We had to put in a parental control for her to download an app. So in that way, we can try to make sure that she's not downloading social media unless we know about it. And so far, she hasn't felt like she's needed it. I mean, that's the other great thing is because she made it to 16 without it, she knows how to communicate with her friends without it. Well, she has friends where those friendships are created outside of social media. Exactly. Exactly. So with my 13-year-old, so we moved house. And when she was in sixth grade, she didn't really need a phone because she was within walking distance to a bus stop. But then at our new house, it was more like a mile away. So we considered the flip phone, but then we ended up getting her a gab phone that can call and text and take pictures. We wanted her to be able to text easily, but that has no internet access and no ability to download social media. Mm -hmm. So what about from the perspective of schools and policymakers? What can they be really doing to help address this problem? So in terms of schools, I and many other experts are advocating for schools to ban phones during the day. So no phones, bell to bell, meaning they have to stay in a locker or in a locked pouch or there's some kind of central place where they can be stored. Because yeah, kids need them before and after school. But having access to that phone during the school day, extremely distracting in the classroom. Any high school teacher will tell you that or middle school teacher. Yeah. Plus, if you have access to that phone during lunch, 
and kids are on the phone during lunch. Right. They're not talking to each other face to face. And that's a great opportunity for them to talk to each other face to face. You know, it's good for mental health. It's good for social skills. Because that's the other thing that, you know, kids really missed out on during the pandemic and we're missing out on even before the pandemic was that face to face social interaction. And adolescence is a key time for developing those types of skills. So do you think that there might even be the stirrings of a backlash among some portions of Gen Z who recognize how bad social media is for them and almost might be okay with having a little bit of a simpler life and not being so online all the time? I think there is. I mean, there's now some young activists who are starting to speak out about this, you know, people in their yeah. 20s, which I think is fantastic because that's right. what needs to happen. We need to hear from Gen Z about their experience with these things. And that's what they're saying. I'm talking about the negative effects that this had and then what changes they'd like to see. So given that this crisis is still happening, what do you think parents should do about this to help support their kids' mental health, to help them feel happy in a world that is not really set up to support their generation's mental health? Well, I mean, one piece is just the, the very standard but very good piece of advice is don't just assume that it's teenagers being teenagers. These are serious issues. And if you see that you know, depression or anxiety or self-harm among teens, to take that seriously and to help them you know, get therapy. Now, with that said, we have a shortage of therapy providers, and it is expensive. So this is one of the, I think, biggest reasons why what you said is correct, that, this, that the world isn't set up well for this. The other piece is just looking at how our kids are spending their time. That really does have an impact on their mental health. And if they're doing what a lot of kids do now, they're in their room on their phone pretty much all the time. It's just not a good recipe for mental health. So you're not being a nag or old fashioned when you think that's not good for them because it's not. Given all of your research on generations and given all the data that you have looked at, if you could pick which generation you would be in, what would you pick? Mm, I would probably pick to be born around now. Really? Why? Mm -hmm. Post pandemic. So you don't have to go through any of that junk of 2020. Yeah. And they have to live through that. And I think we're going to have better regulation around social media and technology. By the time you get to adolescence, so you're not going to have to be that teen who goes through that. And you're not going to have to be the parent of teens who go through that. I am really hoping you're right about that because I have a 20-month-old and that's mm -hmm. I am banking yep. on that. I am like, let's get it together so that she doesn't have to go through this. So yes. I really hope that's the case. Okay, Jean, we've talked a lot about some of these really big concepts today around generations and technology and mental health, but I really want to drill down on some of the smaller moments that are just part of your everyday life in our segment called The Last Time. So uh, when's the last time you saw a celebrity? Um, I mean, in person or virtual? That's the thing. You know, that, I mean, I that's in person. In okay. person. In person. Well, uh, that was in 2018, I think. I think the pandemic's also thrown off my time perception with some of these things. Totally. Um, when's the last time you sent a meme to somebody? 
Well, I use memes in my talks all the time. So I tend yeah. not to send them to people on social media or an email or anything like that. But I'm constantly looking for fun memes to illustrate things to put in my talks. When's the last time you went to the beach? Uh, let's see. Well, um, I live in San Diego, so you would think it would be pretty recent. But it's probably about a month ago. Okay. When's the last time you had deja vu? I don't know. I'm trying to remember a time. Oh, I have it. In June, I took my family to Six Flags Over Texas. And that's the theme park where I spent a lot of middle school. And then finally, when's the last time you wore uncomfortable shoes? Almost never. That's one of my personal rules. I really wow. hate uncomfortable shoes. You're living the dream. You're an icon. <laughs> that is truly one of the best personal rules I've ever heard. Jean, thank you so much. I loved your book, and thank you for your work. Thanks. Bye. Dr. Jean Twangy is the author of seven books, including, most recently, Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Cedric Wilson. Our in-studio engineer is Elliot Lau. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.